often when uh, a novelist is uh, interviewed, um, you'll hear about their process. And for some, uh, they have a kind of basic structure before they start, and then they set out about writing the story. Um, some will have maybe an ending in view and kind of work their way towards that end, and others might have a beginning and then see how the story unfolds after that. It's not unusual in any of those circumstances to hear an author say that the plot begins to unfold for them, almost as if, as if it already existed, and, and or that the characters begin to dictate where the story is going suggesting me something mysterious, that the author is not in charge or control where this story is headed. And I assume what we're supposed to really understand about that is that the author's imagination or uh, experience, stored experience, observations, those are the resources that are being drawn upon, perhaps even unconsciously or in a non-deliberative way. Then you'll also hear, right, in the creative process, this idea of the muse, Right, which is the uh, one of the the nine goddesses uh, that were the daughters of of Zeus, and they uh, they inspired various forms of artistic creativity, and so perhaps it's the muse that's out there. Now, that word's made it into our vocabulary, right? We think about uh, how it is that someone could say that something is a muse for what it is they created, the the countryside, the beauty of of the sunset, or it was something that propelled them to go write a poem or a song. Well, the reality is that even though the author might not know how it is all working, the characters exist because the author first exists. They're the ones that have their name on the book. And, uh, and so the author is, is shepherding the story uh, or dictating the story. And the characters exist because the author that has created them exists. And the writer might feel like they're just kind of walked into their life and demanded to be known, but they don't exist without first the author existing. And I think that's illustrative for us as disciples of Christ, both how it is like our lives, but also how it stands in contrast to our lives. See, we are indeed characters in a story. And like the novels we read, it begins with the author's decision to create a story. And like most stories, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But unlike the authors that I've alluded to, the author of this story knows where it's going. He knows what the end is. He has it clearly in view. And far from the characters seemingly telling the author what comes next, as novelists can be heard to say, it's just the opposite. The story that we are part of is one in which the author is clearly in charge of the narrative, not only of the plot, but also how each of the characters serves that plot. And if you do a lot of reading, you know that finishing a novel well is hard to do. There's plenty that you read where you feel like the author has just kind of painted themselves into a corner and just throws out some sort of inelegant ending. But the story that we're part of, it ends well. It ends very well. It's like a Jane Austen novel where the right people end up with the right people and there's a joyous wedding celebration and all the bad people are left outside. But there's something about this story that you and I are in that we need to wrestle with. And 
That is that we are not the focus or the main characters of the story. We are not the pivotal figure. We're not the hero. And we need to wrestle with this because prior to being made part of this story, we were part of another story and we were the pivotal figure. We were the hero in the other story. It had us at the center. But with the call of Christ, all of that has changed. It has radically changed. Consider a few encounters uh, that we read about that, that where people encounter Jesus, and we'll see what we mean. We can think, for instance, of when Jesus is walking along and he sees Peter and Andrew, and what are they? They're fishers, right? They go out and they fish each day to gather in fish. And Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Or we see about Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus in Luke 19, how Zacchaeus is using his position as a tax collector for Rome to line his pockets, and and he exploits and extorts money out of people. Well, with an encounter with Jesus, he's, he's next giving away half of what it is that he has gotten to the poor, and he's paying back fourfold anybody that he's defrauded. And, of course, there's the encounter that the Apostle Paul has, um, as he is prior to his knowing Jesus, he's called Saul. And he's on his way doing God's work because of this false Messiah that has come along and all of the followers that are corrupting his pure religion. And he's suddenly encountered by Jesus. And he suddenly he's turned into a proclaimer of this Jesus. And, and he goes out into all the world, making him known even to the Gentiles. See, whatever the story was that these men were the hero of, that they were the center of, that has been displaced by Jesus. He is now the center of their life story. And not everybody had the same response. You remember the rich young ruler who comes and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? How's my story going to end? How can I make sure that it ends well? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? And he says, well, I've done all of that. He says, well, you have one more thing you need to do. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And Matthew reports that the young man goes away sorrowfully because he had many goods. He wasn't happy about making Jesus' story his story. There's an interesting account, uh, three three encounters that are kind of gathered together in Luke chapter 9. And it says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? What's this fellow saying? I want to be part of your story. And Jesus says, you need to count the cost. It's not going to be what you think it is. In fact, it's going to be a lot different than you think. The two other encounters are very striking because of how normal the stories sound for the men that are involved. To another, Jesus says, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It seems like, right, they're asking for enormously reasonable things. Let me go bury my dead father and let me go say goodbye to my family. And both of these things were were highly important. They would be for us, but highly important for that culture. And yet, listen again to what the, the wording that is common in both of these encounters. Jesus says, follow me, Lord, let me first go. 
The other says, I will follow you, but Lord, let me first. Lord, let me first. You can't call Jesus Lord, Master, and then set conditions. Yes, Jesus, I'll follow your call, but let me first set the conditions as to how I'm going to heed that call. See, in this story that we have been made part of, of which Jesus invites these others, or they say that they're willing to be part of, Jesus is first. Not our family expectations, not our cultural traditions. Jesus is first. Lord, let me first know. There's no first before Jesus. These other things are important, but Jesus is of prime importance. One commentator says, property, family, vocation are life's most ultimate obligations. If anything should qualify as a valid exception to Jesus' exclusive call to discipleship or as a postponement or modification of it, right, like what these men are asking, these should. Therein lies their danger and deception. For no reasons, no matter how worthy, can compensate for failing to accept the invitation to discipleship. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. See, these other things, these other things are important, but they're not of first importance. You can't have another first as a disciple of Jesus. And this is what is called for if we're going to be part of the story that is being unfolded by the author of all that has been, is, and will be. Jesus must come first. He must be the primary figure in the unfolding story of your life and of my life as a a disciple of Jesus. We no longer, we no longer get to write the story as we want it to go. God is not like a human author waiting to see where you are going to lead him next in the plot. We are to make Jesus' story our story. He's the hero. He's the one who moves the narrative along, our narrative along. Our role is to let our story be caught up in his, subsumed in his, serve his. What does Paul say? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live I live because of my faith in him. That's what's meant to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. He is Lord. He is first. He is the hero of the story. Now, this series that we've been going through is, was billed as something which like a, a final thoughts of Pastor Kirk here at Neighborhood Church. I, I hope there'll be another opportunity for me to preach again at Neighborhood Church. And the buildup, I don't know if I've measured up to it, but I have wanted to communicate things that I feel are important, things that that need to be settled within our soul, as I have said before. Because it has to do with who we are in Christ and how we are to live in Christ. I'm going to take the liberty of reviewing these once again, because I think, as I said way back at the beginning, that they kind of intertwine with one another, build on one another. They don't cancel one another. They're not this and then this. They really are all of a piece in some way, shape, or form. Remember the first was this idea of becoming human, that we're fallen, that we are, we're not what we were created to be because of sin. No, none of us, none of us are fully human. It's only Jesus who is human. 
And Jesus has entered in to our existence as the only true human to make us human. Remember this quote from C.S. Lewis, the second person in God, the son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside the woman's body. The result of this was that you now had one man who really was what all men were intended to be. For the first time, we saw a real man. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come so that his life in us would turn us into real human beings. And then we considered how it was that we are constituted as a steward. That is, it isn't a task that we've been given. It's really who we are. We own nothing, and we exist to serve our master with what it is that he has been given us. You remember what he said, right? He creates Adam from the dust of the ground and breathes life into him. Adam's life is not even his own. It's something that's been entrusted to him to live out. And as one commentator says, this self-understanding of the first couple was realized being stewards and following God's commands were part of their self-understanding. Being and doing were enmeshed in our original created state. And then out of that, we talked about how it is as stewards that we pursue rewards, right? We talked about the relationship of the inferior to the superior, of the master, of the slave to the master, frankly, of the, of the pet dog to its, its owner. Our true delight, then, is to come from pleasing the one who has entrusted to us a stewardship. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, my whole outlook upon everything that happens to me should be governed by these three things. My realization of who I am, my consciousness of where I am going, and my knowledge of what awaits me when I get there. That's what we want to look forward to, that moment as stewards, being faithful to do with what God has entrusted into our care, what God wants us to do, that well, on that day we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's that relationship of the inferior to the superior. We want that praise. Then we talked about being in but not of yet for the world, right? that God has, has indeed left us here. But yet says, be, be wary of the environment in which you live so that you will remain faithful to me and not to the things of this world, which are so deceptive and, and draw us away. And yet realize I've left you here in order that you might declare who I am to the world around you. In order to do that well, then you need to be in the world, but not of the world, because we want to be this other entity. We want to be this counter cultural reality that's in the midst of the world in which we live. And so if we are faithful as pursuing this new humanity that we are in Christ, if we are faithful to take on the stewardship that he has been given to us, if we are pursuing God's uh, well-done, good, and faithful servant, we are living in a total different stream, a whole different way of thinking about existence. And yet that is why we have been called, so that we will do that, so others will see it and be drawn to it, right? Salt and light, like a city set upon a hill. And then we talked about authority, which uh, grows out of the fact that we are created by God. We're a steward that has a master over us. We live in God's creation, and God's creation is, all of it is under his authority, 
And it's this one great quote that I read. We need authority to be ourselves. We cannot succeed at being human beings. We cannot have a flourishing human life without the functioning of authority in the multiple dimensions within which we live. This necessity of authority does not come upon us because some tragic flaw in human beings. That is right. Most people think, you know, if we just had the right environment, all the right circumstances, we could just govern ourselves. Can't we all just get along? Imagine there is no future, right? That, but rather, the necessity of authority is a manifestation of the glory of being human. Authority is built into what it means to be human, and we never escape from needing it for our flourishing. And then last week, we talked about suffering. God testing the genuineness of our faith. In order to, to, to shed us of our self-will so that we'll be walking in his will. And God using pain and suffering to get our attention and to, and to work in us a, a, a desire to just let ourselves go into his care. Again, Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. In his, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment, however. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. I, I think if we were to go back over some of those things and consider them I mean, in, in a certain way, and in, in a way of looking at it, we... we we end up with this understanding of, of identity. That is who we are as human beings and who we are as Christians. And identity involves the fundamental questions of meaning and, and, and existence. Who am I? Why do I exist? How am I to exist? Well, the story we've been brought into, we're disciples of Jesus. And that means who am I? I'm a disciple of Jesus. Why do I exist? For his glory. How am I to exist? In a way, in a way that reflects the reality that I am indeed a disciple of Jesus. See, we're disciples of Jesus, and that means that his story is our story. And one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing, for us to embrace is how radically other-oriented the story is. And this otherness, this otherness begins something outside of us, looking away from us. This otherness begins with what we've already been talking about, that, that it's no longer has us as the central figure in the story. It has rather as the focus, it has Jesus. You know, when in doubt, you can always say as a disciple of Jesus, it's not about you. That, that's a, a helpful little phrase to just keep centered down. It's not about you. So when we think about the life that we're called to as we follow Jesus, it's not about you. It's not about me. And it's not about anything other than what, who Jesus is and what he asks of us. Jesus is the focus. And because Jesus is the focus of the story, how we live is to serve that plot, to take the attention off of us and put it onto him. And how does that happen? By looking more and more like who we are in Jesus and less and less like who we were apart from him. And what we read about when we read the story of Jesus is that he is radically focused on the other. Right? He lives for the father's will, 
culminating in that cry in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. But he also lives for his fellow human beings. And this, I think, is well illustrated, dramatically illustrated in that account that we read from John 13 of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. It's, it's an amazing scene, and there's so much about it that, that could be uh, uh, spoken about and, and, and understood. But I want to focus on this idea that here is Jesus looking outside of himself, looking to the other. It says, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So this is the the scene. This is the backdrop of what's taking place. We've already been told in the Gospel of John that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what happens on Passover, but a lamb is slain, the blood is put over the doorpost and on the lintel in order that the, the, the death would pass over the people of God. So the setting is this feast of Passover, when Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is about to depart out of this world to the Father. That is, that he is about to die. And it says, he has loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. So despite all of their brokenness, despite all of their objections, despite all of their pushback, he continues to love them. And it says he loves them to the end. And here we are at the end. And indeed, he is going to express his love to them very concretely. And it says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So here he is, right, with his disciples. And one of them, one of them is going to betray him. And he knows it. He knows what's going on. He, he clearly understands why he has come. And he's about his hour has come. And he's about to part back to the father. And what's going to be the catalyst of that? It's going to be this betrayal by Judas Iscariot. It had already put into the heart of Judas. So it's the feast of Passover. Jesus has loved his disciples. No matter what they have done to him, he has loved them back, and he's going to love them to the end. And right in the middle of this supper, he's going to now move to demonstrate this love. And yet one of them who's going to receive that demonstration is the one who will betray him. But then this statement, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God as going back to God, rose from supper. Here is Jesus, right? the creator of everything. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was God. All things were made through him, and out of him nothing was made that was made. And he knows that he has come to do the Father's will, and he knows that he has been faithful to do that will up until the very end. And he knows that, therefore, that God has entrusted to him all things, that, that, that he is able to, to, at this point, if he needs to, if he wants to, be able to call down one who will come and, and deliver, who will punish Judas Iscariot and all of those who are, who are plotting with him. And that he knows where he has come from and where he's going back. Jesus is clear about his identity. He knows clearly who he is, where he has come from, where he's returning, and what his call was here. And yet, knowing all of that, what does he do? He rises from supper. He lays aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He represents everybody's response. The one who washes the feet, the servant in the household who washes the feet at that time, was was the lowest of the servants. In fact, some rabbis thought that even if you had a slave that was Jewish, 
He should not be the one who does this task. Only let the Gentile slaves do that. The lowliest slave in the house washes the feet of those who've come in the door. And so Simon Peter reacts as they all would react. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing, you do not understand. But afterwards, you will understand. And Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. You are our Lord. You are our master. We love you. You're not going to get down on your knees and do this menial slave-like task of washing our feet. And Jesus answered, if, you do, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my heads, my hands and my head. And Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. All of this represents uh, a, a kind of portrayal, a demonstration of the depth of Christ's love for these whose feet he is washing. It signals the death that he is about to undergo. It signals his being willing to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he goes on and says, though, in verse uh, 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. You had that reaction that you had. And I understand. You're right. I am your teacher. I am your Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus is clear about his identity, and and, and he understands why it is that they responded as they responded. And yet, what does he do? He leaves that identity aside and and clothes himself in in the garment of a slave, goes down, bends before their feet, and begins to wash their feet. He takes on the lowliest place within that community of followers and says, this is how you need to live with one another. Now, as I said, this anticipates and and begins to telegraph what's going to happen as Jesus' cleansing comes from his shed blood, comes from his atoning sacrifice. And he's not suggesting that you and I can atone for one another's sin. But he is saying that you have an example of the kind of attitude, the heart response, the humility required of a disciple of Jesus. That you need to get yourself out of the center of that story. And you need to begin looking outside of yourself and see that there's a story that God is writing. And he wants you to be a servant in that story so that that story will speak of Jesus. That your life will communicate what you know uh, about this one who is the, the center of this story. Verse 16, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, we have an identity. We have a story. And the things that I've been saying about this idea of our, of our story being subsumed in Jesus' story is not to, not to discount your individuality of each of those whom God calls, that we are indeed image bearers of God. We are a unique creation. And God knows each one of us. He knows the hair, number of hairs on our head. He's fully aware of each one of us inside and out, more than we even know ourselves. When our story is captured, taken up in Jesus' story, it's not that we lose our identity, but our identity now becomes into focus. 
We are at a place of confidence in Christ because we belong to him that we can indeed serve in this manner. We can stand in that same posture of Jesus, not thinking that if I go down and I serve in that manner, I'm humiliating myself. That how dare I allow that other person think that they've got something over me. Jesus was clear about who he was, and yet he does this freely. He does this out of a place of confidence, of assurance of his identity. And because our previous identity, from the story that we were writing ourselves, where we were the central focus of it, where we were the hero, has now been put to the side. And we've, we've got Jesus now as the center. And we're, we're just a character in that unfolding uh, drama that God is doing throughout his creation. But we don't lose who we are. In fact, we gain who we are. We become truly human. The more we take on the life of Jesus, the more we, we, we live as he has lived himself and he calls us to live, we are actually becoming more and more human and more and more free to serve one another. We're not losing our identity. We're not losing our singular, uh, the, the, the singularity of who we are. We are actually being more and more who we were created to be and who God has redeemed us to be and who he's purposing us to be in Christ. Because when we are in Christ, we are, in fact, living as we're called to live. Where his life in us, making us more human, means we embrace this role of a steward. We embrace this idea of the inferior to the superior, that we are looking for that well-done, good, and faithful servant. We are, we are realizing that, that, indeed, God has called us to be something other than what we were in order that the world outside will know what it means to be human, to be, to be in relationship with our creator. And that we come underneath the lordship of Christ because we're created for authority. And we have that benevolent ruler, the dictator that everybody wants, the one who knows how to rule with righteousness and justice. And we understand that and we embrace it wholly because that's who we are as disciples of Jesus. And we know that our faith wants to be pure. And so we are going to do things that, 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 that are going to bring us to places of where it forces us to yield our will to God's will. Our identity in Christ makes us free to live for the other. We can live for the glory of God and we can live for our neighbor. We can love God and love our neighbor. We are released to do this because of our identity in Christ. You know, this event that took place there um, before Passover, uh, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, it's, it's echoed in that familiar language from Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And one, you know, thinks that Paul has really meditated upon uh, what he learned about what took place in that room. When Paul goes on and says, you know, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be taken advantage of, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed in him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I, I I think he sat long and meditated on this account. As Peter would sit and have a conversation with him and say, let me tell you what happened just before Passover, just before Jesus was put on the cross. Let me tell you what he did. He, 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 he got up and, and he took off one garment and he put on the garment, you know, the kind of garment that a slave would wear. And he kneeled down at my feet and began to wash my feet. And then he, then he, then he finished and he said, you know, do you understand what I just did? What I have done for you, you need to do for others. And Paul, you know, meditating on that high Christology and the extraordinary reality of his humility, pens what he pens. And he calls us to follow Jesus, to, to live as Jesus. And this is a mind that we can have, he says, because we are in Christ Jesus. We can actually live in the kind of liberty and freedom that allows us to live outward-facing lives where we're not using our neighbors for affirmation for us, where we're not using our neighbors in order to somehow demonstrate to God how good we are. We are free, liberated in Christ to truly love our neighbors and to be outward focused. And that love expressed as Jesus did for his disciples and as Paul expects of those that he's writing to there in in Philippi, This is a love that is for those in the church, but also for those outside the church as well. See, when Jesus does what he does, he's got Judas Iscariot right there, and he's washing his feet. But all of these men are not fully cognizant of just really what Jesus is doing and who he is. Jesus walked among the world. He came into the world, and the world did not receive him. So Jesus does what he does, lives as he does, thinks as he does, talks as he does in the midst of his enemies. And that's why he teaches us in Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. His outward-facing lives is not just for God, not just for our brothers and sisters in the church, but for all around us. We need to learn how Jesus loved his enemies so that we might, like Jesus, love our enemies. We're in a story, I've said, yes, it's right. We're in a story, a story that involves our our. Uh, are, are, are being transformed uh, in Christ, uh, being embracing our stewardship relationship, pursuing reward, living under authority, understanding that we need to live differently than we used to live and the rest of the world lives in order that the world might know who God is. And that story that, that God brings us through times of trial and suffering in order to test our faith, to make it genuine. We are in a story, and it's a story that God is writing, not that we're writing, that he is writing. 
and and unlike, as I said, those you know, authors all around us who who say, you know, the characters just seem to tell me what has to come next. That's not the way it works. We don't get to dictate how the story goes. God brings us into places as part of his story, of which we are a part, that story for us, and he does it out of love, that shows us, no, this is where I have you right now in this story. And in this story, at this moment, this is how your character is going to develop. This is what the plot means for you at this moment. Because I have something for you to understand about who I am, about who you are, about what I have done in the world that I've created and where history is headed. I want you to understand that now here. We're in a story, one that we did not create, we could not create. And frankly, we could not even see it coming until our ears were opened to hear it. But by God's grace, someone did tell us, and we do understand now. And that's why it's important, again, out of love for those outside of the church, that we remain faithful to the story that God has, and we tell others about this story. Because as Paul teaches, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet, how will they call on him in whom they do not believe? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? how are they to preach unless they're sent? But we are sent. All of us have been sent. Jesus tells us to go into all the world to make disciples, baptizing people, bringing them into a relationship with the triune God and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. That is our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ is a disciple and as a disciple maker. That's who we are in our identity in Christ. We are to live outward facing lives towards God, towards neighbor. And we have been called and free to do that because of our union, because of our identity, because of who we are in Jesus. Remember, it's not about you. And so when you come into a situation of where you're feeling frustrated with someone, or you're feeling like somehow uh, they're not treating you well, just remember at that moment, it's not about you. It's about them. It's about what God wants of you for them in that moment. It's not about you. And if we can get to a place of where we're truly competent on that, that we really can trust that God has us in the palm of his hand, nothing can take us out of that, that he is working all things together for good for those who are love God or called according to his purpose. If we can get to a place then we can truly live like Jesus lives because it wasn't about him. It was about what God, the father wanted for him and what he was doing for others around him. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We need to be in that posture and I would say that all of the things that we've considered really do end up there. They land there. That we are here to do God's bidding. And, that, and God's bidding is to bring glory to him and to bring others into the knowledge of him that he might be glorified. When we talked a long time ago about uh, worship or in discipleship and evangelism, that famous quote from or well-known quote from Piper about really what is evangelism? What, what is the Great Commission? It's about making more worshipers, worshipers of God. And God in his grace has made us a worshiper. We, in turn, following Jesus, free, our free, empowered commission to make more worshipers 
And to do that, we have to be outward facing. It's not about us, not about you. It's about Christ and his glory. Let's pray.